0: And let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 9. Romans, chapter 9. And I'm going to read and preach verses 1 through 5 this evening. We come now to a turning point in the book. We've been on one road for a while. Now we're turning onto a different road, though we're still on the route to our final destination. In Romans 8, Paul's been talking about all these gospel blessings that are ours in Christ, things like the gift of the Spirit earlier in the chapter, and adoption as sons, and election in the past, and glorification in the future, and the confidence that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are actually blessings that God had promised to Israel in one form or another, in the Old Testament. And so there's a lingering question that Paul now turns to address in this letter, and the question is, what about Israel? What about ethnic Israelites, many of whom had rejected the Messiah? If so many of those Old Testament promises to Israel were fulfilled in the church, what is the relationship of those promises to ethnic Israelites now, after the coming of Christ? Well, Paul begins to answer that question in chapter 9, and the main focus of the opening verses is Paul's heart for his fellow Israelites, for his kinsmen according to the flesh, who were outside of Christ, again, who had rejected the Messiah. There's a lot we can learn from Paul's heart, and by the grace of God, our hearts towards the unbelievers around us can become more like his Let's ask God to help us in that way, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for how you worked in Paul's heart to give him such strong desires, to see his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, put their faith in the Messiah. And we pray that you would work in our hearts through these inspired words so that we might be eager to point others To the grace that we ourselves have received, to the Savior we ourselves have embraced by faith. And we ask in His name, Amen. Romans chapter 9, reading verses 1 through 5. This is the Word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. And unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We're going to look first at Paul's sorrow in verses 1 through 3, and then at Israel's privilege in verses 4 and 5. And we'll note three things under this first main point about Paul's sorrow. Number one, I want you to note the truthfulness of of Paul's sorrow, the truthfulness of his sorrow. Look again at verse 1. He says there, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul triple underlines the fact that he is telling the truth. First, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not speaking a lie in Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies. I am speaking the truth in Christ, who is full of truth and who is the truth. I am speaking under the authority and under the control of Christ, and therefore I am speaking the truth. One commentator put it this way, in the eyes of Paul, there is something so holy in Christ that in the pure and luminous atmosphere of his felt presence, no lie Not even any exaggeration is possible. I am speaking the truth in Christ. Then he underlines a second time by saying, I am not lying. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. I am not breaking the ninth commandment. I am not bearing false witness. I am not speaking what is false or fake or fictitious. I am not lying. He says something similar from time to time in his other letters. Perhaps a verse or two is coming to your own mind. Second Corinthians 11.31 The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Or First Timothy 2, seven, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Or Galatians 1.20 In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, he says things like that rather sparingly. If someone were to say things like that every time you talked to them, if they were to say, I promise I'm not lying after everything they said, that wouldn't increase your confidence in what they were saying, would it? It would probably increase your suspicion of what they were saying if they always felt the need to say, I promise I'm not lying to you. But Paul says things like this rather sparingly. He doesn't play this card every hand. He says it from time to time in order to draw particular attention to the truthfulness and the significance of what he's saying, not in such a way that subtracts from the truthfulness of everything else he says, but in such a way that kind of puts what he's saying in bold font so that it stands out. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not Lying. Then the third underline is the last phrase of verse 1. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's as if his conscience takes the stand in the courtroom and bears witness to the fact that he is indeed telling the truth. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. We've all felt what it's like before when we've been untruthful about something. And our conscience lets us know about it, doesn't it? We feel all wrong inside because we know we've done wrong. We've said wrong. But Paul's saying that his conscience bears him witness that he's telling the truth. But since the conscience can be wrong, since the conscience can be misinformed, he adds the phrase, in the Holy Spirit. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sort of certifying the credibility of the witness of the conscience. So Paul has triple underlined the fact that he's telling the truth. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And notice that he's invoking both the second and the third persons of the Trinity, to underscore the truthfulness of his words. I am speaking the truth in Christ. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So here we have the truthfulness of Paul's sorrow. A few thoughts by way of application before we move forward. First, this verse, I think, suggests a number of things we can pray for in our own hearts, in our own lives, things we can pray for in the hearts and lives of our family members or our fellow church members. We can pray that God would make us more truthful. We can pray that God would enable us to always speak the truth in Christ, not to speak what is false in our flesh, but to speak what is true in Christ. We can pray that we would not lie. Kids, it's tempting to tell a lie, isn't it, sometimes? I'm sure you've experienced that before. We all have. Sometimes it's hard to tell the truth. And it's even harder to tell the truth once you've already told a lie. Because you might think it would be better to keep up the lie than to come clean and tell the truth. Just like it's easier to stuff things under your bed or into your closet than it is to really clean them up, so, it's easier to stuff the truth down into your heart than to come clean and tell the truth to others. At least it can seem that way. But we should remember that the consequences of keeping up the lie are always, always far greater than the consequences of admitting that you told a lie. So, let me challenge you, kids, in light of Paul's words here be truthful. If you've told a lie, confess that to God. Tell God about that and receive his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And confess it to your parents so that they too can forgive you and so that they can help you make things right with whoever you may have lied to. All of us can pray that, like Paul, we would be truthful that we would speak the truth in Christ, that we would not lie, that our conscience would bear us witness in the Holy Spirit, that when our conscience takes the witness stand, as it were, it would be able to bear witness to the truthfulness of our hearts and words without hesitation, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, that our conscience would bear clear witness in the Holy Spirit that we are indeed telling the truth. One other thought here by way of application is that we can thank Jesus that he spoke the truth at every moment of his earthly life. He never told a lie, not once. And not only did he speak the truth, he is the truth. He is truth itself. He is absolute truth The standard of truth in the universe, in fact. He is full of truth, and nothing false dwells in him. And his perfect record of truthfulness has been credited to us if we have believed in him. Though we have lied many times, all our sins have been atoned for by Christ, our debt has been paid. And our account has been credited with his perfect righteousness, with his perfect truthfulness. And he now dwells in our hearts by his spirit and by his grace, he is making us more and more truthful as we grow in him. He is exterminating everything false in our hearts and filling our hearts with the truth of his word. So, we can thank Jesus for his perfect truthfulness. We can thank him for the fact that his perfect truthfulness has been credited to us. And we can thank him for the fact that he is growing us in truthfulness more and more as we grow in him. I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That's the truthfulness of Paul's sorrow. Secondly, under this first main point here, much more briefly here, we have the greatness of Paul's sorrow, the greatness of his sorrow. We see that in verse 2. Look at verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul has great sorrow, not a bit of sorrow, but a lot of sorrow. He has unceasing anguish not a flash of anguish but persistent anguish he experiences grief and pain he experiences tears and heartache he's an apostle of jesus christ and yet he feels these things he experiences these things he wasn't a robot he wasn't superman he wasn't immune to these things to feeling these things deeply and neither are we That's the greatness of his sorrow. But thirdly, it's important that we notice the reason for his sorrow. The reason for his sorrow. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The reason is. For his sorrow, which is implied in this verse and amplified in the rest of the chapter, is that many of his brothers, many of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, many of his fellow Jews are accursed and cut off from Christ. They are separated from Christ because they have rejected him as the Messiah. So we can understand more clearly now, perhaps, why he triple underlined the truthfulness of his sorrow and why he described the greatness of his sorrow, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, remember, and yet he wanted to make it clear that he also had a heart for his fellow Jews, because so many of his fellow Jews had rejected Jesus and were therefore accursed and cut off from Christ And he's saying that he could wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ instead of his brothers, for the sake of his brothers. All that is the source of the greatness of his sorrow. Now, notice he says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, etc. That is, I could wish, if it were possible... That I could be accursed for their sake. But I know that's not possible in light of everything I've just said at the end of the previous chapter about nothing being able to separate us from the love of Christ. That's why he says, for I could wish. Paul knows that he could not be accursed for the sake of others so that they could be saved. He knows that only Jesus could be accursed for the sake of others so that they could be saved. Galatians 3:13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Christ was accursed so that we could be blessed. Christ was cut off from the Father so that we could be brought near to the Father so that all who repent of their sin and believe in Him could be saved. As one of the prayers in the Valley of Vision puts it, a prayer called Love Lusters at Calvary, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal light." My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. Groaned that I might have endless song. Endured all pain that I might have unfading health. Bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed his head that I might uplift mine. Experienced reproach that I might receive welcome closed his eyes in death, that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired, that I might forever live. That's what Christ did for us. Again, that's from the Valley of Vision. It's a prayer called Love Lusters at Calvary, if you'd like to look it up. Perhaps if you have a copy of Valley of Vision, or you can find it online as well. Only Christ could do that. Paul couldn't do that for the sake of his fellow Jews. Only Jesus could. He calls them his brothers, that is his siblings, his brothers and sisters. Not his brothers and sisters in Christ, but his brothers and sisters in ethnicity who are separated from Christ. His kindred, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, his fellow Jews. And he says about them in chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire... And prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Commentator Thomas Schreiner put it this way. Deep sorrow plagues him because many of his fellow Jews are not part of the true people of God, the church of Christ. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here's a challenging question for all of us to consider. All of us, pastor and people together. What sorts of things do we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish about? Or just any kind of sorrow, any kind of anguish. Sometimes... To be sure, it's things we should have sorrow and anguish about. The death of a loved one or a constant struggle with temptation, for example. But other times, if we're honest, I think our sorrow and our anguish may be more self-centered than God-centered. And this is a good diagnostic question for us to ask. About any sorrow we experience. Does this sorrow or this anguish have God at the center of it all? Or me? Does it have God and His glory and His kingdom at its core? Or me? If you peeled back all the layers like an onion, what would be at the center? Who would be at the center? I think it's safe to say that Paul's great sorrow and unceasing anguish had God at the center, at its core, the glory of God, and secondarily, others, his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. What gave Paul such great sorrow and unceasing anguish was not his circumstances or his trials, but his fellow Jews and their lost condition. What brought tears to his eyes was the fact that his brothers were accursed. What caused anguish in his heart was the fact that his kinsmen were cut off from Christ. And of course, all of that was rooted in a desire for the glory of God. And may the same be the case with us more and more by the grace of God. May the Lord give us such strong desires for his glory... May the Lord give us such steady longing for the salvation of others that we would have more of this sorrow, more of this anguish. When we think of our unsaved family members and friends and neighbors, co-workers, what we have sorrow and anguish about reveals a lot about our hearts May the Lord and his glory and his purposes be at the center of our hearts. And may we have sorrow and anguish about those around us who are unsaved, like Paul did here in these verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh. That is Paul's sorrow. The truthfulness of it, the greatness of it, and the reason for it. Let's look at our second main point now. More briefly, Israel's privilege. Israel's privilege. And here I want us to note three things. First, what Paul says about who they are. Who they are. He says at the beginning of verse 4, They are Israelites. John Murray put it well when he said, This name harks back to Genesis 32, 28, and is reminiscent of the dignity bestowed upon Jacob in the reception of the name Israel, a dignity conferred also upon his seed. So to say that they are Israelites is to underscore the dignity of their identity. Like if you said about someone, He's a Marine or perhaps she's a Presbyterian. To say they are Israelites underscores the dignity of their identity, of their identity as the covenant people of God before the coming of the Messiah. Secondly, in addition to who they are, Paul highlights what they have, what they have, verse four. They are Israelites, and to them belong The adoption, we're in a list here, I'll say something briefly about each of these, and not the same as spiritual adoption that Paul's been talking about in Romans 8, but rather an adoption to a privileged status, again, as the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. Like when God told Moses what to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. To them belong the adoption. The glory, that is the glory of God revealed at various points throughout Israel's history, like at Mount Sinai, or in the tabernacle, or the temple. For example, at the dedication of the temple, we read in 2 Chronicles 7, 1-3, through As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, "'For he is good.'" for his steadfast love endures forever. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. That is, the covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. The progressive unfolding of the covenant of grace under various administrations, all pointing ahead to the new covenant in Christ. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, that is at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and other laws God gave his people through Moses. And this was a great privilege, you remember. As Deuteronomy 4.8 says, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, in the tabernacle, in the temple primarily. And then at the end of verse 4, the promises. Namely, the promises contained in the covenants, which is why Paul can refer to the covenants of promise in Ephesians 2.12. Promises that ultimately converged and focused on the Messiah. And then finally, Paul says at the beginning of verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. That is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course, the promises that were given to them at various points in their lives. These are the privileges Israel had. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Third thing I want you to notice, along with who they are and what they have, is who they birthed. As it were, who they birthed. Verse 5 To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Messiah, the Christ, came from their race, from their line. And notice he does not say, To them belongs the Messiah like the other privileges listed. He says, from them comes the Messiah because the Messiah came from them but did not belong to them. He belongs to all nations, ultimately. He belongs to all who repent of sin and believe in him. He is man. He is human. He is fully and truly man. That's why it says, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. And he is God. He is divine. He is fully and truly God. That's why it says, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus is God. Christ is divine. Philippians 2 says that he was in the form of God and was equal with God. Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God and that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He is Lord of all, Romans 10, 12 he is Lord both of the dead and of the living, Romans fourteen nine. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation nineteen sixteen. Listen to a few other passages. Ephesians 1, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And one more, Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why Paul says, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. That is the Christ we've put our faith and our trust in. The Christ who is God over all, The Christ who is king of kings and lord of lords. The Christ who rules and reigns over every square inch of the universe and over every detail of our lives. Israel had all these privileges and yet many of them failed to believe in him. And it is only by the grace of God that we have believed in him. He is our savior and our lord and our refuge, and our Redeemer. And we want others to come to know Him savingly. May we have that sorrow and anguish Paul had as we think about the unbelievers around us. And most of all, let's remember together, especially as we face the trials and tribulations of this life, that Christ, our Savior, is God, over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. We thank you for all the privileges you've given to us as the people of God today. We pray that you would give us that same heart that Paul had, a heart that has genuine sorrow and anguish for those around us who are cut off from Christ. And we thank you that you are God over all, over all the universe, over all that's going on in our lives. Help us to trust in you at all times. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's take a minute to think and pray about what we've heard and then we'll sing together.